Last week, uh, John led us uh, through Mark as at the very end of chapter one, Jesus actually headed out on his first mission trip in a way. He traveled outside of Capernaum throughout Galilee, preaching and driving out demons. And as you'll recall, if you were here and if you weren't, that Mark doesn't share a whole lot about this journey. And that was sort of the challenge, I think, for John in having this passage. All that Mark kind of shares with us about this time is this one interaction that Jesus has with a man plagued with leprosy. And in, as, if you weren't here, the, 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 sort of what takes place is in response to a desperate plea by this leper, Jesus does something extraordinary. As John highlighted for us, he crosses barriers. Jesus crosses barriers and violates taboos. He willingly touches what would have been considered death at that time in order to bring life. He becomes isolated so that this man is no longer alienated from the community that he's a part of. And again, to kudos to Lee the week before, but to John brilliantly shared with us that this seemingly innocuous encounter that we could pass over represents a microcosm of the glory and the urgency of the gospel. If you missed his sermon or Lee's, I just highly recommend you go to our podcast or get the CD and give it a listen. Again, really good stuff. This morning, as we return to Mark's gospel, Jesus heads back to his home base of Capernaum. And so I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter two, as Dave, Duge, Dave Nugent is gonna come and read scripture for us this morning. Let's welcome Dave. Good morning. You can find the scripture on page 695 in your pew Bible. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that, was, that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus before the crowd, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the, ma- the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up and take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Dave. All right, I I, I want to set the stage for us. I really want us to enter into this story. Jesus, as you heard, goes back to Capernaum most likely back to the home of Simon and Andrew where he was staying before. And if you remember the last time that Jesus was in that house, Mark tells us that the crowd was so big there was a line at the door to get in to see him. And, and that word crowd, I want you to go back a couple of weeks. I kind of gave you a lens for which to see the different groups of people that will be around Jesus throughout the Gospels. There's three of them, and one of the first groups is the crowds. And here they are. The crowds are here again. But this time, where before there was a line at the door, this time Mark shares with us that the place is wall-to-wall with people. It's packed so tight, he actually goes out of his way to say there wasn't even room left, not even outside the door. 
Lee, when he was preaching about the population in Capernaum, shared with us it was probably around 600 to 1,500 people. So what Mark is telling us is that this isn't just the Capernaum crowd, but people are coming from outside Capernaum to be where Jesus is. The point is the crowd around Jesus is growing. In fact, as we go through Mark, you ought to always in your mind have a picture of Jesus constantly being surrounded by or at least pursued by just a growing crowd. And Jesus, without missing a beat, Mark tells us, begins preaching begins preaching the gospel to a packed house. And that gospel, you recall, Mark gives it to us at the very beginning and back in chapter one. It's a great shorthand way of understanding the message that Jesus continually preaches. And it's this, the time has come, the appointed time, the kairos time. It's not ordinary time, it's appointed time, time that God promised long ago. It has come, repent, repent, stop. Look, listen, turn around, see what's going on, acknowledge what's happening, repent, and believe the good news. Believe, respond to it, engage it, interact with it. Don't let it pass you by. The kingdom of God is at hand. The reign of God, the rule of God is before you, among you, working in and through you. This is the gospel message that Jesus preaches again and again in word and in deed. But can you picture, can you, can you imagine all the noise in a packed house? No room, wall to wall. Can we imagine that as Jesus is beginning to teach? Can you, can you imagine the elevation as Jesus modulates his voice to try to reach everyone? Can you, can you see people straining wherever they are to hear what Jesus is saying? Can you also begin to enter into that picture something that we learn about as the narrative develops in Mark, but now we can see what's happening simultaneously? Can you also imagine, can you picture as everyone's leaning in to listen, as the surging crowd around the house keeps getting bigger and bigger, can you see the one man that's missing all the action? As throngs of people are passing in front of him, can you see that one man who remains motionless? because of his disability, feet that won't move, legs that can't carry him. One man, in the midst of all the buzz and the excitement, who is silently resigned to once again being left behind. But as we see that man, that lone man, we realize he, he's not alone. He's not alone. There are four friends with him. And, and the excitement, the, 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 the real action of the story is when they suddenly make a compassionate move. They make this bold effort, to, I love this, to jump ahead of the line. And let's be honest, their approach to beating the crowd is inspired, but it's somewhat unorthodox. They head for the roof. They head for the roof of the house and begin to raise the roof. I want to give you a sense of what that would have looked like. This is a, a good cross-section of a first-century Israelite house. They climbed up on the roof, and the roof of these houses uh, was sloped, and it was thatched. You can kind of get the sense of the wooden cross beams that line the roof, and then those beams are overlaid with a matting of reed and branches and dried mud. Roofs in, many, roofs in many houses in parts of the world today are still built like this. And these kind of roofs are sufficient in the short term, but they're actually not that durable in the long term. They have to be replenished and rolled every fall because of the onset of winter rains. It's this kind of roof that these four friends raise. Important you hear that word, raise. Not R-A-I-S-E, but raise, R-A-Z-E. Which if you're not familiar with that word, it means they scraped, they clawed, through the reeds and the branches and the dried mud. Can we picture that? Can we imagine as Jesus is teaching to, to huge, a huge crowd, can we imagine the growing sound of that scraping? 
as Jesus is teaching. Heads turning. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Where's that coming from? Can we, can we picture the falling debris? A little bit of dried mud, some reeds, some branches that gradually increases as the roof starts to open up. Eyes all of a sudden looking up, squinting at the sunlight that's starting to come, peeking through the hole. People, what the, what the heck is going on? And how can we not? How can we not envision in our mind's eye? This I can picture most vividly. How can we not envision the countenance of that paralyzed man? The subtle shift in his posture, despite his limited mobility, as he begins to see the glimmer of possibility through a hole opened in the roof, as he, as he starts to feel the hope rising in his chest as his four friends lower him slowly down. We might have expected Jesus to be a little annoyed here. I mean, he's trying to teach. He's in the middle of a sermon. You all are being very, very quiet, by the way which I appreciate, again, because our courtesy is, you know, someone speaking, we listen. And all of a sudden, Jesus is in the middle of preaching, teaching, and all of a sudden, boom, down comes a guy, not to mention all the debris and the noise, down comes a guy on a mat. You know, you would imagine that Jesus would be a little annoyed. I mean, do you know how hard it is to hold a capacity crowd's attention, let alone people you can't always see? And do you remember the last time Jesus was in Capernaum, just to really bring this home for you? The last time Jesus was in Capernaum, he was also preaching. He was preaching in a synagogue in the middle of a sermon. Do you remember what happened then? He got interrupted, rudely interrupted by a man with an unclean spirit who came in. So you would think that Jesus might get a little frustrated right here. But what is so subtle, so seemingly insignificant, but I think matters, is then and now Jesus doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't shut down. He goes with the flow of the Spirit. He follows the agenda of his Father. It's a kairos moment for Jesus. What is God saying to Jesus? Jesus, son, this is, the, this, this is it. And what does Jesus do about it? His attention becomes focused on the four friends and the man. He engages this man and his friends. And Jesus' reaction is not frustration, it's amazement, delight, joy. In his account of the story, Luke actually tells us, and this is so cool, Luke tells us that Jesus was impressed. Think about that. Wouldn't we normally think that it's Jesus who makes an impression on us? Wouldn't we normally think that Jesus would be the one to make his mark, to leave us, leave a lasting impression on us, to leave a mark? It's Luke who tells us, no, these four friends and the, and the man on the mat impressed Jesus. They made a mark on him. They impacted Christ. Jesus is so moved, so delighted, so impressed that he heals this man before the sight of everyone. And you know what happens. You heard Dave read it. The crowd goes wild. <sighs> Hosannas and hallelujahs being echoed within this small space. We've never seen anything like this, Mark tells us, they say. And it's true. Remember, it's been 400 years of silence, 400 years since they have seen anything like this. Can you imagine the generation upon generation who heard grandparent and great-grandparent, oh, well, Elijah did this and Elijah did that and Moses and yeah, yeah, yeah. Burning bushes, parting the Red Sea, writing on the wall, raising the dead. We haven't seen any of that stuff. Hundreds of years of hearing the stories but seeing nothing until now. We've never seen anything like this and it's true. 
that Jesus. Those crowds, they see it. Jesus knows how to put on a good show. But then again, Mark lets us know that not everyone approves of his performance. Oh yes, the crowds are growing. But as Mark tells us in chapter two, the critics are beginning to line up too. Some of the teachers of the law were told, who by the way, and I love the irony of this, some of the teachers of the law who are sitting. Remember, it's standing room only, folks, but the teachers of the law are sitting. Could you maybe make a little bit room for anybody else? No, we're, we're good. They're sitting. And as they're sitting there, some of them take issue with what Jesus has done. Now, I love how the NIV puts this in English. They're, they're, it sounds just so proper. Why does this fellow speak in this way? Let me break this down for you, East Coast style. Who does this guy think he is? What's up with this guy? I mean, that's in essence, what, what does he think he's doing? And, and, and I know that the way it reads in English is that they were kind of saying this in their minds and Jesus kind of read their minds. Yeah, there's some of that going on, but let's be clear. The, the, if you get to the actual language, what they're doing here, and this, will not, this should not be unfamiliar to us, they're grumbling. It's kind of a favorite biblical pastime. Grumbling when it comes to God. And grumbling has got to be one of the top 10 most annoying sounds in the world. It sounds like a dog chewing on a bone. They're grumbling. They're murmuring. And this should remind you of the Israelites in the wilderness. They grumbled all the way through the wilderness. And here the teachers of the law are grumbling. They're murmuring. They're unhappy. What's their complaint? What are they so upset about? Where do you want to start? Where do you want to start? First thing, which maybe we don't even notice, is uh, Jesus says he forgives this man's sins. There's nothing, none of the priest stuff is done here. We just studied Leviticus, and this is one of the reasons why. You all, your radar should be going up. Forgiveness, according to the law, according to Leviticus, required a couple of things. If you wanted to have forgiveness, you needed a priest, right? Needed a priest, you needed repentance. The person had to be repentant. There had to be restitution made, and number four, big one, you needed a sacrifice, and that needed to have take place in the temple. So this is not the way that it's supposed to happen. There are some preconditions before forgiveness is offered. And as a brief aside, can I tell us that we're no different? This should shock us, and it doesn't shock us enough, because if, let's just say, in our, forget the story for a second, in our ordinary lives, in our Christian walk, if someone came up to you and said, you know, my heart's really heavy, um, I know you're a follower of Christ and I, I really feel like I need forgiveness. Most of us would say in some form or another, well, what do you need to be forgiven from? You gotta, you gotta confess it out loud. You gotta come clean. What is it? And then that person would say, and even with sensitivity, we might go, okay, well, that's, that's good. But we, you know, the other thing is, are you really sorry for what you've done? And we need to make sure you're truly repentant. It's all great to share what you did, but are you really sorry? And, you know, you need to go back and make amends for all that stuff you did if you're really sorry. And then you need to come to church with me on Sunday. Get baptized. Then you're forgiven. What is going on here? Jesus doesn't say any of that. Jesus has no preconditions to forgiveness. So just to give a little sympathy for those grumbling teachers of the law, we might grumble too. Where, where's, this, where's the stuff that's supposed to come with the forgiveness? It's not here. But if that wasn't enough, added to all of this, and this is really the piece that they actually talk about, the teachers of the law, some of them get upset, really upset about what's implied by all of this. This is outside the norm. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And beyond that, if you're going to change things, it's God 
who's the only one who forgives. That's why they say you're blaspheming, Jesus. You are insulting God. You're insulting God because you are presuming too much. You are losing respect for the gap between God and us. And do you remember from Leviticus what the penalty is for blasphemy, by the way? Death. You're insulting God. Jesus doesn't get ruffled. He calls them out with a very rabbinical response, a very normative response for teachers of his day. What he does is he answers a question. Who does this guy think he is by way of a question? Which is easier, Jesus says. He, he follows in the tradition of a great rabbi called Hillel. Hillel, who probably was there when Jesus was a boy at the temple. Hillel had sort of made famous this way of responding rabbinically with a question with a question. He would often say, things, how much more? That was sort of the, the standard Hillel line. And Jesus just varies a little and says, which is easier? Which is easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say, take up your mat and walk? It's a trick question. Both are impossible. That's the point. Both are impossible unless you are God. And Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus understands how this works with the critics. Jesus then says, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. What Jesus is doing here is he's indulging for those teachers of the law what would have been known as the prophetic litmus test. This is Old Testament stuff. Jesus is way more than a prophet, but here's the thing. Back then, if someone presumed to speak for the Lord, if someone said, I am speaking on behalf of God, the litmus test was, if whatever you say on behalf of the Lord doesn't happen, then that's not a message from the Lord. You're not speaking for the Lord. So Jesus says, okay, so you know that I am speaking for the Lord, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Take up your mat and walk. Jesus heals the paralyzed man. Game, set, and match. But really, the, the centerpiece of this story is not even the, it's not the crowds. It's not the critics. The centerpiece is where Mark points us, which is up. Mark wants us to look up and pay attention to the four friends lowering another man down to the feet of Jesus. I mean, that's the centerpiece of the story because as I mentioned before, that's where Jesus is engaged. That's where his attention is drawn Mark tells us, seeing their faith, Jesus turns to the paralyzed man and tells him his sins are forgiven. Beloved, the crux of this whole encounter, the centerpiece, is faith. Faith is the essence of this encounter, and it will not be the last time in Mark. What it comes down to is faith, following Jesus. And that's why we're studying Mark. What does it mean to be a disciple? Being a disciple of Jesus is about faith. And what I want you to see, because faith is a pretty loaded word, for Mark, speaking on behalf of Jesus, for Mark, faith is more than mere belief. Faith is more than what we mentally assent in our minds. Faith is belief that results in action. Faith is acting on, responding appropriately to the kairos moments of life. We acknowledge, we realize God is in our midst. What is God saying to me? And what am I going to do about it? That is responding in faith. Faith is engaging those two questions. Not just letting them sit there, but engaging them. And notice in this story that all three of, the, of, three of them, the teachers of the law, the friends, and even the paralytic, have a kairos moment. The teachers of the law have a kairos moment as they're sitting there in judgment, sitting there in judgment in the midst of a packed house when all of a sudden the rules get changed. All of a sudden forgiveness is granted without any preconditions. All of a sudden forgiveness is just given by someone who is not seemingly God. 
And yet in the midst of this Kairos moment where God in the form of Jesus Christ is saying, this is the reign of God, repent and believe the good news, their response is to join the crowd in worshiping and praising the Lord, adding their own hallelujahs and hosannas. God has revealed to them that he is at work. But instead, they choose not to exercise their faith. Instead, they sit and say, that's not possible. That's not possible. That's not right. In contrast to those teachers of the law sitting in judgment, we have the four friends. Four friends who have a kairos moment, who have a, a friend who can't get to Jesus. What is God saying to them? These friends believe that God is telling them that this man needs Jesus. And what is God telling them to do about it? Get him to Jesus. And so they pick him up and carry him on their backs. These are friends who are acting in faith. They don't just believe it. They're acting on what they believe God is saying and what is God is telling them to do about it. They literally, as we see in this story, go through the roof to get their friend near Jesus. And we haven't even talked about the paralyzed man. What about the faith of the paralyzed man? Not explicitly mentioned, but it's there. This paralyzed man has a kairos moment. Do you notice it? We talked about it. You know, when his friends carry him, I think it's safe to say that his expectation is, maybe I'm going to get healed. Maybe I'm going to walk again. His heart is pumping in his chest as he's lowered down. But the kairos moment comes when he's waiting for the word of healing and Jesus says, child, your sins are forgiven. I was coming for healing. What did God say to me? Your sins are forgiven. And just in case he's not sure what God is telling him to do about it, take up your mat and walk. Do we think about this moment? Do we think about what might be going on in the head of this man? How long had he been unable to use his legs? How long had he been unable to walk? We don't know. He came seeking healing. He's, he, he, he was excited, anticipating that, and Jesus tells him his sins are forgiven. Can you imagine for a second just how unnerved he was by that shift? Just to put it in perspective, you know, let's say you have a, a real chronic pain and you go to the doctor and you're like, doctor, I got this pain. Can I get a prescription? And the doctor goes, son, your, your sins are forgiven. Awesome, thanks for that. That's great. Can I get a prescription? This is not what he's expecting. He's totally unnerved by suddenly this shift, but then go further than this. In the midst of being totally off balance by what Jesus has said to him, he's also just overheard, don't miss this, he's overheard the leaders of his day, those who are in authority, those who have taught him all his life, publicly declare, rebuke Jesus' authority. He's blaspheming. This man is dangerous. He is presuming something that deserves death. What is going on in his head at that moment? I, I, I just was hoping my, le my legs could, my, sin, my, my, sins are, my, sin, my sins are forgiven. But, but they say you're dangerous. They, 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 these, these, are, these are our leaders. These, these are the people we listen to. Faith. It's not just what we believe, but how we act on what we believe. And that man, in that moment, rather than continuing to sit with the teachers of the law, rather than get lost in the crowd as he's been perhaps all his life since he's been unable to walk, that man takes a stand. That man exercises the same faith as his friends as he takes that first step of getting up and walking. 
Wow. Wow. What about each of us? What about us? What do we believe? As disciples, as followers of Jesus, beloved, the content and the character of our faith matters. The content and the character of our faith matters. I've said this before, but it begs repeating. We gather together on Sundays. Many of us have Bible studies. Many of us are in our cars, devotionals at home. But does the content of our prayers, the content of our prayers, does the content of the songs that we sing, does the content of our words about Jesus, does it get acted out in our relationship with Jesus? Does what we sing and pray and say about Jesus, does it get lived out with Jesus in our homes, in our places of work, in all the spaces in between? Jesus questions the crowd and the critics and the friends and the man. He knows their hearts, Mark tells us, and he knows ours. Beloved, which is it easier for us? What's easier for us? Which is easier, to sit in fear or to step up, to step out in faith. Too many of us within the community struggle with a lack of faith rather than an abundance of it. We find ourselves paralyzed like the man in this story, but it's not our body that won't move, it's our will. We find ourselves unable to do the good that we know we should do, the good that we long to do. So sinful habits plague us, our, our selfishness, our arrogance, our laziness, our apathy, our rage, our malice, our envy, our love of pleasure. They cripple us. And yet, Jesus turns to us without precondition, without us even looking for it. Jesus turns to us, maybe even carried into his presence by someone else. He turns to us, he looks at us, and he says, child, your sins are forgiven. Do we believe him? I know what you're saying up here. I know what you might even be feeling here. What I'm asking is, do we believe him in the fabric, the living out of our lives? Do we believe that Jesus can and does forgive our sins? This is a covenant question. It's about our identity. Do we live as if we are children of God, forgiven in Christ? Are we living out of that childlike identity, that forgiveness in Christ? Because the scriptures are clear. If we believe this, if this is our faith, not just in what we profess, but in how we live, then that will lead to a life in which we are repeatedly forgiving others. If we know we are children of God, forgiven in Christ, we are repeatedly people of forgiveness. Not, all right, I'll forgive you this one time, but if you cross me again, so help me God. We're repeatedly people of forgiveness. Forgiving as we pray in the Lord's Prayer as we have been forgiven. If we truly believe this about Jesus, then we are continually expressing our gratitude to God. We're not like the kid who has to get elbowed in the side. Say thank you, it's polite. Okay, God, thank you. We are continuously praising God. We can't stop. The gratitude just pours forth from us because we believe that we are his children and he provides for us and the, most, the greatest need we have has been provided for, which is our forgiveness. If we believe it, then we are generously sharing grace. Generously. We're not saying, what's the minimum I have to give to be a part of this? What's the token that so, I can get, so I can just be included? 
No, we're saying, is that enough? Do you need more? I've got more. Tell me what you need. I'll give it. I'll give it all away. It's not mine anyway. God gave it to me. Let me be generous with everything I've been given. If we believe that Jesus has truly forgiven our sins, that he is who he says he is, then we are generously sharing grace. If we believe it, then we act on it by no longer being influenced by what other people think about us. Paul is the best model for this for us. I love Paul. Paul in his letters just comes out at one point and says, you know what, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. In fact, I don't even care about what I think about myself. That's brilliant. I don't even care about what I think about me. All I care about is who Christ says I am. That's how I live. That's how I roll. That's faith in action. I know that some of us have grown up in the church all of our lives. I look at some of you. Some of you are new on this journey. Some of you have been around for a while. And yet I also know in the mix that some of you are still stuck in this place. You are paralyzed. And I want to invite you, if that's you this morning, I want to invite you to take that first step of faith today. I want to invite you, if you find yourself stuck in that place, to stop sitting in judgment, to stop sitting on the sidelines, stop being paralyzed, crippled by guilt and shame and fear, and take up the mat of your identity and walk. Some of us, maybe this isn't our struggle. Some of us, maybe we've, we've begun to walk. But then the next question in this passage comes to us. We may believe that Jesus can and does forgive our sins, but the next question that the four friends put before us is do we believe that our friends need Jesus? Do we have enough faith to carry our friends to Jesus? This is a kingdom question. This is a question about our responsibility. And we can't even go here if we haven't dealt with the covenant question. If we haven't understood our identity, if we're not living out of our identity, then this is a foreign question. But it's, an, it's the question that comes next. If we know who we are in Christ, if we act out of that faith that we have been forgiven in Christ as a child of God, the kingdom question is, do we believe our friends need Jesus? My brothers and sisters in Christ, it's this simple. Is Jesus the most important, the most influential person that you know? Because if he's the most important and most influential person you know, he's going to be the first person you go to every time in the midst of whatever's happening in your life, not after all other resources have been exhausted. He is going to be the first person that you go to. He's going to be your go-to guy if you believe that he's the most important and influential person that we know. Do we really believe that Jesus is the one who has the answer to life's biggest questions? Every so often in our families and our friends, we actually get deep. We really get into this, the fabric, the marrow of life, the real stuff. And when we're having those conversations, when we're getting real about the questions that are before us, does Jesus come up? Is Jesus the person that we look to in the midst of the questions that we're wrestling to together? Is Jesus in our lives the best person to follow? We all follow somebody. We all do. Bob Dylan said it best. We all serve somebody. Is Jesus the best person to follow? Is he in a class by himself in terms of a life to be learned from and shared with others? Do we believe that our friends need Jesus? And guys, I'm not talking about pointing to Jesus. We're real good at that. I'm not talking about pointing to Jesus. I'm not talking about name dropping Jesus. I'm not even talking about quoting Jesus. Can you imagine if the four friends did that to this guy? Hey, you know who you need? You need that guy over there. You need Jesus. You need to get over to Jesus. That's who you need to go to. You know what Jesus said, and I think you need to hear this. Jesus said this, 
I'm really tight with Jesus. I follow Jesus. So what I'm telling you is you ought to listen to what Jesus is saying and you need to get over to him. Can you imagine that crippled man on that mat? Thanks a lot. Thank you. Great. I'll try to get over there. I'll try to make sure I can hear him for myself. But they don't do that. Guys, can we cease and desist from parading around with all the Jesus merchandise? We are a church that thinks if you wear a Jesus t-shirt or a Christian tie or you have the fish playing in your radio or the biggest Bible or the biggest cross around your neck, that somehow that's leading people to Christ. It isn't. It just proves you're loud and obnoxious. Faith is belief in action. And what that means when we ask that question, do we believe our friends need Jesus? Faith being belief in action means that we need to look like Jesus. Not wear stuff that points to Jesus, that quotes Jesus. We need to look like Jesus. That means we act like Jesus. We become Jesus for others. Do you know why Luke says, I realized it. Do you know why Luke says he, that Jesus was impressed by the four friends? Do you know why he, they made an impression on him? Because here it is. Jesus saw in the four friends himself. They were doing what he would do. They saw, he saw those four friends doing what he is doing, scraping and tearing down the barriers. They saw them, he saw them being him. Beloved, faith is belief in action and that means being Jesus coming to where others are. Do we have enough faith for our friends? Do we have enough faith for our friends who don't believe? Can we have faith for them? Or are we so busy trying to get them, smacking them around to have faith rather than having faith for those who don't believe? Can we have enough faith for those who can't believe, who've been burned, who've been scarred? Do we have enough faith? Can we carry each other to Jesus? Can we lower ourselves and serve others as Jesus? Can we go public? Can we risk failure and humiliation? Do you think about that with these four friends as well, by the way? Think about that. Because we, we know how the story ends. We don't go here. Those four friends, they have a friend who's been paralyzed, crippled for life. They've got a brilliant plan. We're going to drop you through the roof. Uh, what? <laughs> We're going to drop you through the roof. Now, right now, we, don't, we know how the story ends. But uh, what if when that was done, Simon and Andrew were like, you're going to pay for that. You're going to pay for that. What if Jesus said, really? Seriously, right now? What if Jesus said something and he didn't get up and walk? Do you understand the risk that the friends took publicly, willing to be humiliated, in front of the teachers of the law, by the way? Beloved, are we willing to go public? Are we willing to risk failure and humiliation? It's slow. I know. It's hard. It's messy work following Jesus, leading our friends to Christ. But let me tell you something. It is compelling to see Jesus with skin on. I can't believe I'm going to say this on Martin Luther King's birthday, but I'm going to give you an example of what I'm talking about. This man. If you don't know who that is, that is Pope Francis. I know we're Lutherans. I know we got some angst. But I, 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 and I, and the, and I think what, what amazes me is this is a picture, by the way, if you're not familiar with this. It's Catholic tradition that the Pope usually washes feet of people at the Vatican, well, this Pope decided to go to the prisons and wash the feet of the prisoners who were there. We have theological differences with the Catholic Church, but that does not change how compelling this is. Three days ago, this, this brought me to tears. Pope was teaching. 
man covered in boils. Have you ever seen the movie The Elephant Man? It's pretty much what he looked like. Head down, couldn't even, did not even want to look up, just so ashamed. And Pope Francis stopped, found him, touched him, and you see here kissing him and praying over him. Can I just make an observation that, that makes the point I'm trying to get at here about faith? what real faith looks like, faith in action. The Catholic Church has not had a real good lot of publicity in the last couple of years. Rightly so. There's been scandal. There's been controversy. People outside the church, I'm not even talking within the church, have been taking lots of shots at the Catholic Church. Some deserve, some not deserve. But my point is it's been all negative attention. And yet what is fascinating, if you're not paying attention to this, for even be, not even in the church but outside the church, is people who don't necessarily have an affinity for Christianity are compelled. They're compelled by what they're seeing. And it's not Pope Francis as much as it's who Pope Francis is pointing to. Beloved, Jesus with skin on is compelling. It isn't easy, it's messy, it's dirty, it risks humiliation, it risks failure, but it is compelling because Jesus with skin on is faith in action. What stands in the way of our belief leading to our action? What stands in the way? Why are we lacking? Why are we so dead? Are we still in the crowd are we still in the crowd standing back saying, you know, show us something. Show us something, do something. Do something extraordinary and then we'll have faith. I want to tell you something you'll find in Mark and all the Gospels. Jesus never complies with this, by the way. The crowds may be there, but Jesus never complies with this. Show us something, do something, and then we'll believe. Jesus never performs a miracle to compel belief. It's the opposite. Jesus' miracles are only in response to belief. Are we still in the crowd? Basically saying, I need to see something first. No, that wasn't big enough. Yeah, that was a couple of weeks ago. What do you got for me lately? Or maybe we're with the critics. We've talked about that. Maybe we find ourselves in the, amongst the critics questioning and refusing to accept. There's nothing wrong with questions. I just want to make this clear. But the problem is when our questions get in the way of us honestly dealing with the answers that are before us. Are we questioning as a way to refuse to accept what we are experiencing? Are we denying and avoiding what Jesus is saying and doing right in front of us? Jesus is encountering us directly, but we will not hear. We refuse to listen. Beloved, we're disciples. We're followers of this Jesus, and this gospel that we find in Jesus is this God who declares our wholeness. We come seeking healing, and this God says, I'm going to make you completely healed. This, we come looking for, to be able to walk again, and this God says, I'm going to give you forgiveness. You're going to walk in every sense of the word. This God in Christ raises the roof, destroying the ceiling of an old model of forgiveness. And through the cross and resurrection, he ushers in a new age. Are we living in that new age? He ushers in a new reality where love, mercy, and grace, there is no ceiling. For God's love, mercy, and grace in Christ, the sky's the limit. Are we living as if mercy, grace, love, hope, peace have no limit? If there are limits in our lives, then we're not following Christ. Let's scrape. Can we do that? Let's, let's scrape together. Let's claw through the roofs. 
Let's scrape and claw through the roofs, the barriers that we put on our own growth and maturity in Christ. Let's squint as we take in the sun and adjust our vision to the brightness of the power and authority of the spirit that is available to us in our lives. Let us exercise faith. Jesus will say later, it doesn't take much. It just takes the faith the size of a mustard seed. It doesn't take much. It just takes leaning out and touching someone who can't even look you in the face, who the world won't look upon without being horrified. It doesn't take much. It just takes kissing and whispering to someone, you belong, you are accepted, you have been forgiven, you deserve grace, and I will give it to you recklessly, without abandon, without condition. Do we believe that Jesus forgives our sins? Do we believe that our friends need Jesus? Beloved, let us have the kind of faith the faith that believes that things can change, the kind of faith that we act upon, the kind of faith in which we not only allow ourselves to be changed into our covenant identity, but the kind of faith that also allows that gradual work of transformation to actually change us into agents for change in the kingdom. Amen.